Beethoven wrote his Six Bagatelles, Opus 126, in 1823. Now, that's a highly significant date. He's just finished three monumental works, the Ninth Symphony with its enormous choral finale, the Ode to Joy, the equally ambitious heaven-storming Missa Solemnis, and the Diabelli Variations for solo piano, one of the greatest and longest sets of variations in the repertoire. And the following year, he was about to embark on the first of his famous late quartets. But then, in the midst of this, comes a radical change of scale. Six tiny bagatelles for piano. And we're going to be looking at those in detail today, and after which we're going to hear a complete performance of the bagatelles by Ashley Woss. And I'm going to be joined today by students from the Royal Northern College of Music here in Manchester and Cheatham School. They are James Batty, Andrew Dunlop, Jessica Ling and Fergal Marnie. Now, when Beethoven wrote these pieces, the title Bagatelles usually meant something like something of no importance. But Beethoven was also very proud of these little bagatelles. He told his publisher that they are probably the best I've ever written in this form. It's rather striking that he should be so proud of such tiny pieces when he was writing such monumental works as the Ninth Symphony or the late great quartets that followed. But Beethoven has good reason to be proud. These may be short pieces, but they can pack quite a punch. Well, if you know Beethoven's style, I don't think it's very hard to recognize him in that music there. It's got that, something of that titanic element sometimes that you encounter in the sonatas, although there's also a good element of humor as well. Well, since we've got some music students here, I thought I'd ask you to start with how many of you have played them? Andrew and James. Have you played them all? So, Andrew. Yes, um, I played them all, and I think I felt that when I went through the set, at the start, they appear like just miniature pieces. but. As you progress, and as I progress, you realise that there's a lot more to them and why Beethoven was so proud of them. They're not trifles. And, and would, you, would you agree, James, that they work as a cycle? Do you think they work together? They stay more as a cycle than they do as individual pieces? Um, yes, definitely. I've, I mean, I've only played through them a couple of times. Um, but, but, yeah, they, they definitely work as a cycle. And um, I like, the thing I like about them is that you can, you can play them over and over again and always discover new things in them. Well, Beethoven obviously thought that these bagatelles indeed did work as a kind of cycle, as a kind of macro statement, because in one of his sketches he wrote over them in big letters, Cyclus von Kleinigkeiten, a cycle of, well, actually Kleinigkeiten is very difficult to translate literally. It means something like littlenesses, and that can mean trifles, but it can also mean just very small things, and saying something is very small is not the same as saying as it isn't significant. And something else that these little bagatelles do for us that's rather unusual is that they offer us a kind of special view into Beethoven's workshop because you can see him in these pieces playing around with ideas, trying them out in often quite unlikely ways, experimenting. It's all part of the creative process. Play is a very vital element in these pieces. They're wonderfully unpredictable. Let's start with the very first bagatelle, number one in G. It has a slightly unusual marking for Beethoven. It's marked cantabile e compiacevole. That's singingly and, well, actually, compiacevole is quite an interesting word. I looked it up in my Italian dictionary, and it had about eight definitions, one of which implies the idea of courtly flattery. I wonder if Beethoven was thinking of something like that, because that idea seems to fit the opening tune. It's a very well-mannered little piece, very contained, very well-behaved. You wouldn't expect this to lead off in odd directions. What 
what Beethoven does next isn't really very surprising. What he does is he takes the tune and he slightly decorates it. He adds trills and then some rather elegant flowing phrases, little embellishments at the end. Well, so far, so elegant, so neatly balanced, so safe, you might say. But then this is the point, oh, we're only eight bars into the piece, where things start getting slightly unpredictable. A volatile element enters. We've had the tune and the decorated version, which you might call them A and A2. And it now sounds like we're going to get a fairly conventional B section before a neatly packaged return of the A scenes from the tune we heard at the beginning. But after just four bars, the time signature changes. We're two in a bar instead of three in a bar. And you can hear the phrases breaking up and reforming in all sorts of strange forms until they finally explode in a sort of lovely free-floating cadenza at the end. It's completely unexpected on the basis of what we've heard before. then halfway through that last little phrase at the end, we begin to get the feeling that we may be coming back to the tune, but that's underlined may. Beethoven's left a big question mark over the form at this point. What happens now is that the melody itself begins to return, but in a new form. It takes wing and soars upwards, and at one point you can hear the right hand soaring upwards while the left hand seems to plunge downwards as though it's assumed a life of its own. It creates an extraordinary sense of wide space. This is something that Beethoven does quite often. He has the hands quite far apart with no filling in between. And at this point it creates an almost ethereal effect. To me, that sounds almost as though it might be a transcription out of something from one of the very late string quartets, the works with which Beethoven ended his career. Well, the next passage sounds even more like quartet writing, because what Beethoven asks the pianist to do is to have his hands cross over each other. And it's like voices crossing each other in a string quartet texture. If you're listening to a string quartet, it's obvious from the different tone of the instruments which instrument is crossing in which direction. But if you play it on a piano, where the sound is relatively homogenized, the pianist has to make a special effort to pick out the different voices so that we can actually hear individual voices crossing over each other. Maybe this is a good point to ask Ashley what he thinks about this too. I mean, I've compared that to string quartet writing, particularly those hands crossing at the end. Do you find that pianistic? Not at all, really, Stephen. I mean, I think you're quite right to mention the string quartet. Many of his late works, the sonatas in particular, could well have been written for string quartet. I mean, they're not at all pianistic and actually quite awkward to play. I mean, this particular passage reminds me very much of a violin playing off the string. And it's, it's with the difference of articulation between the hands, the crossing of the hands, it's actually surprisingly difficult, even though it looks very, very simple on the page. So this is one of those infuriating passages that, from the audience point of view, sounds quite simple, but for you is quite hard work. Absolutely. And there are actually many places similar to that throughout this set. So these are deceptively simple pieces. Absolutely. And, and part of the difficulty comes from that simplicity and not making too much complicated music out of it. 
Well, we're going to have another example of what splitting up of interest between hands now at the beginning of the second bagatelle. Now, this is a different kind of effect. Beethoven passes what could be a continuous long line for one hand alone between the two hands in a rapid kind of dialogue. It's part of the explosive effect of this opening, this splitting between the hands. So I'm going to ask Ashley to play the opening of number two only much more slowly than Beethoven writes it so that people can hear what the hands are doing. There you are, the tune, four notes on one hand, four notes on the next, and then back again. But let's have the full effect now. It, it really does feel quite explosive when you play it like this, and you can feel that kind of, almost like a ball being passed rapidly between two hands in what ought to be one line, especially towards the end of this passage. The second part of the piece, the second bagatelle, opens closer to the mood of the opening of the first one, that compiacevole spirit of number one. It does sound more like a kind of musical trifle, but then that splitting of the idea between the hands becomes even more dramatic with long, tense silences in between, and the rhythms are thrown off the beat, which is something that Beethoven likes doing a lot. Beethoven, in fact, was one of the great rhythmic experimenters of classical music. And then suddenly it's split widely across the keyboard and from this compiacevole mood of a pleasant miniature trifle, we're suddenly in the world of the most dramatic of the late Beethoven piano sonatas, perhaps like the Appassionata Sonata, which the name means exactly what it sounds like, the impassioned sonata. Suddenly we're in a completely different world. <laughs> it really does seem to get quite a lot more serious in the middle of this piece. And now Beethoven has to wind the piece down and to wind it down within a reasonable short length of time so that it fits his description of Kleinigkeit and littlenesses. And there's something about the end which I, I rather like again here. It's as though he's decided to reassure us at the very end of this piece with a few conventional little phrases and a nice neat rounding off pattern at the end. As though this really is just a trifle after all, as though that sudden explosion of dramatic feeling in the middle really didn't happen, or at least it's somehow or other put into context. It sounds almost poignant in that kind of neatness after that explosive climax. But it's a fascinating example of how these bagatelles can sometimes seem to get out of hand, lead off in directions that perhaps Beethoven didn't expect. But the formal container that he contrives for it, it holds the music just about. This reminds me of something I read in one of Mozart's letters recently about how he said he liked to take his ideas for a walk. And in some of these pieces, it makes me think of Beethoven as being like a man taking a dog for a walk. At first, it seems that he's got quite a small dog on a leash, and the dog will do what he tells him. And then suddenly, halfway through, it turns into a Great Dane. Now, I've had the experience of walking a Great Dane, and even though I'm a pretty tall and strong man, when you've got 11 and a half stone of dog that suddenly wants to go its own way, that can be a rather interesting experience. But listening to these bagatelles, 
It sometimes is very similar. It's as though Beethoven's ideas have suddenly turned from something very small and unambitious into something big, and they're saying, hang on, I want to go my own way here. There's something much more interesting we can see over there by that tree. And Beethoven ends up almost being dragged with the dog along the pavement. I was just talking to one of our students here, Jessica, at the beginning of the program, and uh, Jessica, you said that this reminded you of something else, this quality these pieces have. Especially the second one. It's very comparable to the second Papillon of Schumann. A lot of musicians have argued that the bagatelles herald the beginning of the 19th century character piece. For example, Mendelssohn songs are that words, Papillon, Carnival, Kinderzene. And um, I think the beginning is very similar to the Papillon because it's very technical at the beginning, forte, strong, and then a sweet tune emerges from this. And it's exactly like the Papillon. It is, isn't it? And I think that's a really interesting comparison, Jessica, with someone like Schumann, because Schumann's piano music, particularly his early piano music, when it first appeared in the first half of the 19th century, was considered to be completely mad by some people because they couldn't see how it worked formally at all. Mendelssohn is maybe more beautifully formally balanced than Schumann, but Schumann loves to follow his fantasy wherever it'll lead him, and sometimes you think he takes pleasure in doing things which you feel break the rules and don't go by the book. But you're right, I'm sure a piece like this must have been important to Schumann because he loved Beethoven's music. And you can imagine him playing a piece like this and thinking, oh, I could do things with this myself. So yes, Beethoven in a way is in these tiny little pieces, he's predicting major things that are going to happen in the romantic movement. So I think that's a, a really good point. It also, I think, throws light on some of the things that happen in some of Beethoven's, in inverted commas, more serious works. I mentioned earlier the Hammerklavier Sonata, the Everest of piano sonatas, which really is like a, a huge symphony for solo piano. Now, I remember when I was at university, I was taught that everything in Beethoven was supremely logical. It all made sense. Nothing was out of place. And I can remember listening to some of Beethoven's late works and thinking, no, it doesn't make sense at all. This really does seem to go off absolutely its own direction, sometimes as though Beethoven has ceased composing in that proper classical sense and become an improviser. And here's a passage that really makes me think of, right from the middle of the second movement, the scherzo of the Hammerklavier Sonata. You know, if you think about this as one of those exalted late works of Beethoven, this actually reminds me more of a Tom and Jerry score. It's quite easy to write your own cartoon to music like this. In fact, there's one passage where Ashley will play this which makes me think of Tom sort of shaking his head, looking for Jerry like that very rapidly. We'll see what you think. to the scherzo theme as though nothing had happened at all. It's that kind of wonderful, volatile, if you like, sort of controlled madness that I think that makes Beethoven sometimes such an exciting composer. Bagatelle number three seems to bring a complete change of mood and character. And it's a change of key, too. The first two pieces were in G, G major and G minor. And the third piece, the third bagatelle, is in E-flat. Now, one of the things that makes it pretty clear that Beethoven did envisage these works as a cycle, to be played as a cycle, is the fact that the key relations are quite interesting. Apart from the first two, which are both in G, each piece is a major third lower than the one before it. So the first two are in G, the third is in E-flat, the fourth is in B minor, the fifth is in G, and the last piece is in E-flat. It makes a huge augmented triad. Could you play those keys for us, actually, on the piano, just starting with G and then going down? And then down. So you can hear from that, it's a perfectly symmetrical cycle. Each piece relates to the one before it in the same way as the one before that. And it's actually something that Beethoven often does, again, in his allegedly more serious works. So this, again, is an indication of how seriously Beethoven views the fact that these works add up to something, a whole that's greater than the sum of the parts. But number three does really bring a complete change of character. In fact, at first, it sounds as if it could almost be the slow movement of one of Beethoven's middle period sonatas. But then, as perhaps we're now beginning to expect, this too ends up going in a direction that at first wasn't predictable. In fact, it very soon breaks up into little cascades of broken chords. Mm -hmm. 
What happens next is basically just a recapitulation of the melody we heard at the beginning of the piece, basically. But in fact, Beethoven goes quite wild in the way that he decorates this piece. It is really quite lavish in the embellishments that he plays around with on top of this theme. We start with a trill, and trills are very important in late Beethoven, especially in the late piano works. And then there are these gorgeous high soaring figures in the right hand. And yet, no matter how lavish the decoration is, I think you can still hear the presence of the original theme somewhere in the background. That's almost like the final variation of a set of variations. Beethoven was a great composer in variation form. But in one of his, in inverted commas, serious variation forms, you'd expect maybe a variation like that final one to come at the end of a long process in which he gradually adds more and more decorations to the theme. In this case, it's as though he'd taken the theme and the last variation and snipped out the intervening stages and instead put in that strange little cadenza passage that we heard at the beginning. And also there are the final moments of the piece. We have that dotted figure, da-dum-dum, which doesn't seem to have appeared anywhere else. Or maybe it was in one of those variations that Beethoven snipped out. It has a quality of whim or caprice. And yet at the same time, for me, there's something quite logical about it. It feels like a, a very effective winding up of the piece. Could you just play that ending for us, Ashley? This is one point at which I'd like to ask our students here. What you think of that ending? Does it sound logical to you, or, or does it sound as though Beethoven is following his imagination in another strange way? I think you wanted to say something, James. Um, yeah, I think here he's doing exactly the same sort of technique that he used in number two. He's let the ideas sort of take him where they want to take him. Yeah. For example, here he's, he's first of all added this right-hand trill, then he's added a bit of a counter melody, and then he's finally settled on this sort of trickling demi-semiquaver pattern. Mm -hmm. And then finally, he just wants to wrap it up in a way that reassures us it is just a bagatelle. So it's just a very understated ending, I think. It's yeah. fascinating how often these pieces do have these understated endings, isn't it? As though Beethoven were almost saying, only joking, didn't really mean to be serious, don't worry, it really is a bagatelle after all. Exactly. But the things that happen in the middle make you doubt that, don't they, in a way? Yes. Fergal, you're a jazz improviser. I mean, do you feel that there is something improvisatory about these pieces? Um, yeah, I would say that. Um, but something else I just noticed as well, this final four bars mm. of this bagatelle, mm. if you go back to the first bagatelle, mm -hmm. the point where he starts to deviate from what we said was the norm, and it seems a very similar figure there, this three-note motif. I know what it is. Actually, would you mind playing example four for us again? Because I think that's a lovely point you just made, Fergal. It certainly hadn't struck me, but I think you're right. He's actually referring back to one of the earlier bagatelles. does seem to refer back to that. So these pieces are a cycle. They're not just a cycle in the way that they balance each other emotionally. 
they're not just a cycle in that they're related to each other by this sort of marvelously symmetrical key structure. They're actually referring backwards and forwards to one another in very subtle ways, aren't they? Mm -hmm. We're coming to the fourth bagatelle next. That's the dramatic B minor piece we heard right at the start of the program. So here's a reminder, I think, just in case we've forgotten by this stage how that piece went. This is the, the opening of the fourth bagatelle. Obsessive, pounding rhythms with accents on the first beat. This is something that's very typical of Beethoven. You think how often in the symphonies, for instance, there's a terrific driving rhythm with a pushing accent at the beginning. Uh, the Seventh Symphony, for instance, is absolutely full of those kind of dancing rhythms, but again with a very strong emphasis on either the first beat or off the beat or the first note of the phrase. Here's a marvelous example towards the end of the first section of the B minor bagatelle. And then comes a surprise in that there's a contrasting section in the major, which although it's in the same presto tempo as the first section, couldn't really be less like the music we've just heard, except that that sort of broken drone Beethoven uses to build this music on in the left hand remembers those pounding accents we've just heard, but very, very quietly and now slightly off the beat. And above that comes the passage that again is like that da-da-dum, da-da-dum, or da-dum-dum that we heard in the third bagatelle. This is a little figure in the right hand that flows evenly and again off the beat. quiet little figure we heard there is really quite fascinating example of again how Beethoven refers from one section to another. Do you remember how the, the, the B minor bagatelle opened, the, minor, the energetic minor key beginning? First of all with this simple figure. That's the kind of driving motive behind the first section. Now Beethoven takes that da da perfect fourth and stretches it a little bit to make an augmented fourth. Da dee. then back into that dreamy floating major key music again. It is almost like something recalled in a dream. You listen to it and you think, oh, I've heard that before, but where? And it isn't immediately obvious when you look at it where you've heard it before, but when you see the connection then, you understand that Beethoven's referring back to the music of the section before. Now to that quite striking contrast of major and minor in the fourth bagatelle, number five sounds like something else again. In fact, at the beginning, the fifth bagatelle sounds almost like the kind of thing that composers write for young piano players to do as a kind of exercise, a finger exercise. It's like a study in doing thirds in the left hand. I'm sure many of you will know the kind of thing I'm talking about. And this is what it seems that Beethoven's doing at the beginning. Perhaps if Ashley, if you could just play the left hand at the beginning of this piece. I'm sure students you've all had to play things like that at various stages yes I can see nodding there on top of this Beethoven puts a very simple melody indeed though with a few perhaps surprise notes in its course comes a slightly surprising change of key and the study in thirds now seems to be in the right hand which again would be more or less well behaved say for a piano exercise test the left hand's ability to play thirds at first and then the right hand's ability to play thirds only after about only nine bars Beethoven seems to forget that he's writing a study for beginners and suddenly we're edging towards the world of the late piano sonatas. It sounds as if that dog is tugging away on the lead again and pulling this piece in a direction that perhaps we didn't expect.
And then there's a tiny coda which brings us back to that very simple first theme as though Beethoven again is saying, sorry, forgot myself a bit there, and tries to make amends by neatly tying all the strings together at the end. Now again, I have a question for our pianist students here, because looking at the comments that some of my esteemed fellow critics have written about this bagatelle cycle, I find that they're often quite dismissive of number five. It's a bit too much of a trifle for some of them. But I'm not sure that you agree with me there. Um, James, you were saying something about surprises in this piece. Um, yeah, this particular surprise that um, I really like um, is how the first section ends on this, this B major chord and mm. the ear's really expecting um, an E minor section, but suddenly it just launches into this C major melody, this really innocent melody that seems as if it could have been going on forever. It just seems really understated and not pretentious at all. <laughs> yes, at the same time, there's a slightly ironic note in there. Definitely. The saying, aha, I had you there for a moment, yes. And Jessica, you, you were saying something too, I think, about some of these slight surprises in the way the melody goes. Yeah, and um, one of my friends is learning this particular bagatelle, and um, when he first played it, uh, I confess that I thought he was playing the wrong notes, actually, for the ac accidentals of the D-sharp in the first section and the C-sharp in the second section. Well, it seems almost blasphemous to say, oh, well, he, he wrote a wrong note, but I don't know what you think, Stephen, about this comical ad. Well, I think it's wonderful, uh, and I think maybe sometimes that Beethoven was almost relieved to get away from having to write things that, as it were, might measure up to certain laws. I mean, we know he was a great lawbreaker, but sometimes in the more serious works, you can see him going to great length to make sure that his most marvelous ideas still do retain some kind of sense of, of, the, of the formal elegance that one expects, particularly of harmony in the early 19th centuries. But he, he is always someone who goes off and follows the lead imaginatively, and these are wonderful, tiny examples of that happening. I've mentioned the Hamaklavia Sonata once today, but there are two crucial passages where it seems he did make a mistake, and yet the mistaken version makes more musical sense than what it seems he intended to write. So there's even a possibility that his unconscious overruled him in some respects. Sometimes we find ourselves making mistakes and thinking, oh, that mistake's rather significant. Maybe I could stay with that. And it's that wonderful feeling of him being liberated from laws, even in tiny little pieces like that, and I think that, that makes them so significant. What about you, Andrew? I mean, do, do, they, do this sound right to you, or do you think that sometimes Beethoven is slightly going off in strange directions here, and just for the fun of it? I think it epitomizes his whole ethos towards the bagatelles that, you know, I'm going to write this simple little piece, but which on the surface it appears that, you know, it's a nice little third study. But it's like he's really like laughing at you because it's like ha 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 ha. I'm just going to include these notes that people think are mistakes, but really, he's one step ahead of the game all the time. And I just think that's what makes these pieces so wonderful. It is. It's great fun if you're trying to play it as well, isn't it? But particularly if you're sight reading. Well, hey, wait a minute. What's happened there? Why is that? Yes, but it's it's fun for the listeners too, isn't it? It isn't just a private joke between Beethoven yeah. and you as the piano, is it? It's actually something you can communicate to people. Well, I think there's a marvellous example of, of a really remarkable surprise at the beginning and end of the final bagatelle, the six. It begins with something almost like if you can imagine in the days when there were theatre pianists or pianists playing to accompany silent films. It's almost like something that a pianist would improvise to introduce a kind of a music hall comedy act. You know, you can imagine, ladies and gentlemen, presenting Ashley Wass. <laughs> Applause, please. <laughs> Now, what do you follow that with? Well, not what you'd expect. Again, um, what comes out of that is not a fast movement at all, but a beautiful, exquisite slow movement with a, the marking andante amabile, a new melody. This melody seems to take a moment or two to sort of pull itself together, as though the pianist is sort of slightly taken aback by what he's just played. And then gradually it settles into this beautiful, gentle 3-4 andante melody. wonderfully unexpected little kind of dancing figure that suddenly seems to come from nowhere. James, you had an interesting observation, again, something I hadn't noticed, about the way Beethoven writes his expressive markings in this. That's right. One of the things that really interested me about this piece when I first looked at it was the fact that Beethoven writes the word tenute over the notes. But Held, yes, yeah. sustained. 
Mm. Exactly, um, and he, he spaces the word out over several notes, which is, which is quite unusual. And he does the same thing at the end of number three with the word pedal at the end. So mm. it's very ambiguous, but at the same time it's very sort of sentimental and very precious about the expression. And it looks on paper almost as though he's setting the expression tenute as, as a musical text to a song, you know, singing te new te like that. It's almost it, the sort of thing you can imagine a piano teacher saying to the student as it, they're playing it. That's a very good point. It's exactly like the kind of comments a teacher would make over your shoulder as you're, you're trying to play it. You know, make sure you hold these notes. Um, Beethoven does write the most extraordinary expression markings in his music, and particularly in his later music. If you think about it, if you look at Haydn and Mozart's music, Haydn and Mozart being the great composers, the, 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 the milieu out of which the young Beethoven grew, their expression markings are usually fairly straightforward. They're usually fortes or pianos or occasionally more and simple tempo markings and quite occasionally maybe an expression marking here or there. Beethoven writes the most wonderfully lavish instructions. Another of the later piano sonatas, not the last sonata, but the next to the last sonata, opus 110 in A flat, there's a long crescendo near the end and Beethoven has written not little by little getting louder or faster, but little by little returning to life, nach und nach wieder auflebend. It's extraordinary. It's not just a, an instruction of how to play it in terms of fast or slow or loud or soft, but actually to, to try and convey the real spirit of what it is that he's trying to say. So I think that's a beautiful example in miniature of how Beethoven's expression markings are so involved in the texture of the music. So we've had this new melody. And finally comes the kind of exquisite winding down. Again, almost like we had in the earlier E-flat variation, the slow movement variation. We get again those broken phrases that Beethoven wrote ten nute over the top. And finally it seems to be coming to a slow, gradual resolution. And it seems that Beethoven is going to do what he's done in quite a few of these pieces, which is wind up in a relatively conventional way, as though to say, no, 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 I wasn't really being serious. This is a nice, neat, contained little trifle. It's just a bagatelle. Only in this case, something different happens. That's how it ends. In fact, you feel like somebody shouting, that's all folks, at the end of that. So, it's time to hear this cycle of littlenesses, or cycle of trifles, or bagatelles, call them what you will, and see how well they work as a cycle, and see whether those connections that we've established during today's analysis do work for you as listeners hearing this piece. So, it's over to Ashley Wass to play Beethoven's Opus 126 set of six bagatelles.
Beethoven's Bagatelles, Opus 126, played for us by Ashley Wasp. So in a way, what we've been doing as we listen to those Bagatelles is looking over Beethoven's shoulder as he improvises on paper. Surely this is a very different matter from what Beethoven does when he composes. This is not simply a question of the inspiration of the moment. If you look at Beethoven's sketchbooks, you can see that he worked over ideas again and again and again on the paper. Sometimes it's like watching a sculptor trying to liberate the statue which he feels is imprisoned within the piece of rock he starts with. I'll give you an example of this. Take the famous funeral march theme from Beethoven's Eroica Symphony from the second movement. It sounds like this. And so on. Now, believe it or not, that theme went through more than 30 different forms before Beethoven arrived at the one which he approved for public performance. The original idea, or at least the first idea he notated in his sketchbook, sounded like this. It's not much of an idea, is it? I wonder if you or I would think of keeping a tune like that. But Beethoven obviously felt it had potential somewhere, and he worked at it again and again until he felt he'd really got it right. So it looks from this as though composing for Beethoven is more or less the opposite of improvising. Well, no, I don't think it's as simple as that, especially not when it comes to the late works that Beethoven wrote for his own instrument, the piano. I think we can see the improviser here in certain places at least, just as we can in those Opus 126 bagatelles. I've already mentioned that passage in the famous Hammerklavier Sonata, where what seems like a relatively orderly and conventional scherzo and trio is suddenly invaded by what sounds like a demonic version of a Tom and Jerry score, only to spring back into the scherzo theme as though nothing had happened. Well, I think we can sense this tension between Beethoven, the great considered formal architect, and the improviser, the man who follows the mood of the moment, very particularly in the piano sonata in A-flat major, Opus 110. This was written in 1821, just two years before those Opus 126 bagatelles. I think that the tension here between these two is a wonderfully creative tension, and I hope that'll become clear as I just have a quick look at the sonata before we hear it. The sonata's in three movements. The first two are a calm and lyrical first movement, and then a compressed, edgy second movement, a kind of scherzo with folkish overtones, although the tension evaporates magically at the end, as though the music is dissolving into thin air. Then the finale begins almost immediately. How would you describe the form? Well, it's not easy, but it sounds to me that, once again, as in those bagatelles, we're hearing Beethoven the improviser trying out ideas. At first, he tries a little dotted figure in B-flat minor, as though he's starting a funeral march. And he seems to say in his head, will something come of this? But no. Almost immediately he drops it, and the music changes instead into a kind of recitative you might find introducing an aria in an opera, a very, very vocal style of writing for the piano's right hand.
And sure enough, out of this recitative there does indeed come an aria in the home minor key, A-flat minor. Klagender Gesang, a lamenting song, comes to rest, a full close, and then something else starts in a faster tempo, a fugue subject, in the home major key, A-flat major. But just at the point where this fugue seems to be reaching a splendid climax, it seems to come unstuck. The lamenting aria starts again, now in a very remote key, G minor. simple formal cadence figure. Now it does the same thing, only this time it settles on a major chord. Beethoven seems fascinated by this surprise turn of G major. He plays this chord over and over again, growing louder with the pedal down, creating a great halo of overtones, as though he's reveling in this sound, this extraordinary new discovery. And then, magically, this slab-like G major chord sound into this great fog of harmonics breaks down. It seems to melt into a more flowing arpeggio figure. And then, as if to Beethoven's surprise and delight, this melting arpeggio figure flows straight into an upside-down version of that fugue theme. Extraordinary marking on the music at this point. Nach und nach wieder auflebend. Little by little returning to life. And you can hear that process happening as this second fugue begins to build in strength and power. And Beethoven, with his newfound confidence, starts to steer his way back from G major to the home key of A flat and an exultant, triumphant conclusion. So here we have familiar forms, recitative, aria, fugue, as you'd expect in a polished sonata composition, yet interspersed with passages where it's almost as though we can hear Beethoven the improviser, discovering the ideas, discovering the forms as he goes along. And you can feel as though you're actually with Beethoven in his own workshop, sitting at his desk, at the very moment where these ideas strike him. You can almost hear him going, aha, that's interesting, I'll try that. So let's hear this balance then between the commanding, authoritative creator of powerful integrated musical forms and that inspired improviser, the man who can go with the prompting of a moment, in Beethoven's Sonata, Opus 110 in A-flat major. <laughs> 